0: Dr. Amalia Ghanias-Malka, welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socio-economic class division, and gender-based violence. Welcome to the final broadcast of 2020. This year has been a challenge across the board as the world contends with devastating socio-economic effects of the COVID-19 epidemic. Our continent is no stranger to overcoming adversity, and women in particular have demonstrated their fortitude to seek solutions for the broader good. This episode is a montage of extracts from previous shows that have taken place this year. In the spirit of positivity, we begin today's programme with former Deputy Minister of Defence, who was also the former Deputy Minister of Health, Nazizwe Madladla Rutledge, who reminds us of some of Africa's formidable women and how South African women on the political front have worked tirelessly to drive equality in the country. I just wanted to first
1: um, acknowledge the role of women in my own life, the stories of ordinary women who joined and led the struggles in our country and around the world. I read about women not only who kept the home fires burning uh, during the time of migrant labor, when their husbands were taken away to work in the mines, but also of women in rural areas organizing against uh, land dispossession. I heard about Queen Zinga of Angola, a ruler who set her people free. In our own country, I heard about Charlotte Matoge, a pioneer for women's liberation, who was the first black South African woman to graduate from university. She's, she's a great inspiration. And and for that matter, I proudly tell people that my middle name is Charlotte, identifying myself with Charlotte Maturge. Um She led many protests that we celebrate today. I've heard of Wangari Matai of Kenya and the Green Belt Movement. She was a woman ahead of her time. I've met and worked with Victoria Mugwenge, a human rights lawyer who paid with her own life for our freedom. These stories of courage and resistance are a source of hope and inspiration, and we must indeed celebrate them every day and honor the sacrifice women made and continue to make. I think when we were organizing pre 1994, pre liberation, we, we became very, very much aware of the need to organize women around specific issues that affect women. And we were wanting to make sure that these issues are integrated into the broader agenda, into the national liberation movement agenda. And of course, there was some resistance to this. Uh, coming from uh, i think a a a misinformed uh understanding of a staged revolution you know where first you must unite only to deal with issues of race, then other issues like economic injustice will follow so at that particular point in time we had to fight hard to for for women's issues and women's demands to be in, integrated into their Uh, national liberation agenda. And, in fact, through unity, through uniting across class and gender and race, we were able to build a very strong movement which produced the Women's Charter for for Gender Equality. That particular charter drew on the Women's Charter of 1954 and was a reservoir of uh, demands coming from women which were integrated into our constitution. We had then a very strong women's movement, and uh, many of the leaders, women leaders, who went into parliament, like Fini Jinwala, Dr. Pumzilem Lambonduka, Fax Gavinda, came from this movement. And what we needed, and at that time I think we were quite aware that this was important, was to continue to have the strong women's movement, supporting the leaders as they went into uh, parliament. Because, you know, these institutions were created by men, and it, it, we needed to transform them uh, as we got into them in in our numbers. Uh, but to do that, we needed also to have uh, uh, support from the women's movement, because they, they were aware of what it was that we wanted to be changed in our country. So even as the leaders, women leaders went into parliament, these institutions needed to you know, continuously be reminded to to change, to transform in order for it to respond, for these structures to respond to women's demands. So this this is a very important part, in fact, in any situation. Numbers are important, and this question has um, uh, arose even during our early days, because suddenly there was a change from 1% representation of women in our parliament to 27% at that time. Now, of course, that representation has improved tremendously to close to 50 percent representation in parliament and in the government. But as we were looking at the numbers, we were also very, very aware of the fact that it's also about the agenda. It's the issues that the women bring into these institutions. It's not only just a matter of numbers. So so this continues to be an important uh, factor even as we look at female leadership ev- everywhere.
0: Thinking for a moment about women's movements cultivating and pushing through with women's specific agendas, what do you feel that we have in existence today in South Africa as as something that is, is equal to the types of movements that you had pre-1994 to, to galvanize and have a focused agenda for women?
1: Okay, you've raised a very important point which I, I should have uh, commented on, uh, gender-based violence. And, and we also add femicide. This is a, a, a key issue around which women... Um, have united in in, in our country. Obviously, of course, uh, women coming from different sectors, whether it's in the trade unions, whether it's it's professional women or women in the civic movement, young women, older women, you know, women of all colors, we experience uh, gender-based violence. It therefore is important for us to unite and organize ourselves and speak with the with a strong voice, which is what I think is happening now. so I see women, whether they' are in academia as you are or in the media, needing to pick up what in that sector are the issues that arise for them in the struggle we we began by sitting around the table and asking women, what are the issues? What are the priority areas, issues for you? And of course, we learned that there were issues that could be grouped as practical women's needs and uh, strategic gender demands. And that was very important for us because it then allowed us to say, okay, let's organize around those issues because people will come into your movement if the issue that you are discussing affects them, they have to feel that this is something that is close to home, which therefore they need to be part of changing. So that continues to be the case even today. Even as we sit in our different uh, spaces, in our different corners, whether it's in the media or at the universities, it's important to identify these issues and to organize around them. And then we come together across these divides, and make representations to the institutions that hold power. But in our own situations where we are, we must be part of making the change.
2: Hi, I'm Zonke Dikana, a South African Afro-Soul musician, songwriter, and producer. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa,
0: the voice of the African Renaissance. Education has been a key driver to help women advance their career paths. Dr. Mashidiso Moeti, the World Health Organization's Regional Director for Africa, explains the transformational impact education has played in her life and advancing her career, and the duty one has to use your privilege to benefit others.
2: A very huge and and significant uh, role, I would say. Uh, You know, my my family, uh, uh, let me say my paternal family, my my father came from very humble beginnings, and uh, it was his uh, obsessive pursuit for education. Since I'm speaking to somebody in South Africa, you'll understand. My, My dad, when he was born, uh, as the eldest of a family of eight children was living in on a farm on, in the Northwest as part of the family of farm laborers. So those can be some of the most challenged circumstances for children to get an education and to kind of emerge from the multi-generational situation of you know, living in a farm worker's hut in situations that can sometimes uh, be the apex of inequity, let me put it that way. And he decided, that in order to get an education, he had to leave that place and go to Joburg to join my grandparents who were working there in that typical way of African families. The couple is in town, they have kids, and because of their life circumstances, need the help of the family to look after the kids. He was very determined to get an education. He did. He did all sorts of things coming from such a background, ended up with a medical degree. So for me and my family, education has been transformational in in a couple of generations in terms of where he started off and where I have had the opportunities because of my parents' investment in my education and so have my my siblings. And, you know, our family actually migrated from South Africa to Botswana, because my father was not in agreement with Bantu education and did not want his children to go through that, so I ended up going to school in Botswana, in Swaziland, and uh, going to university in uh, in the in the UK. So education has always been very important in my family. On my maternal side both of my grandparents were were teachers so we had on the one side my dad very much wanting to push push education and my grandmother i never met my my maternal grandfather he died before i was born but my grandma was a primary school teacher and also a kind of farmer in the in the transkei as it was then in the western cape absolutely brilliant reading all the time so i had her as a kind of role model reading Thick books and sort of uh, getting into a debate about what's happening in the world with her grandchildren when she was supposed to be just dandling us on her knee. So it's been really uh, a very important influence on on my life. And as I said, I believe in it absolutely in its transformational uh, value. Uh, If you end up as the, the daughter of a couple of doctors, you are in a position of privilege. And that means you need to earn that privilege by doing your best, you know. You need to understand that you are uh, privileged in a context where many people are struggling themselves. So this this was, this was kind of to inspire you, you know, you've had privileges. As soon as I could open my eyes, I had books. My parents used to buy books as part of Christmas presents, birthday presents. So, and when I looked around at other kids, and even where was the nearest library where we were living. So one was privileged in that way. And that's what um, kind of inspired me to know that I'm kind of lucky and I have to do my best and I have to think about other people. Because my parents ran a a practice in a township in Springs and most of the community there were people, so low-income people. So, okay, Springs was a mining town, but you know, it was uh, not an environment in which there were many rich people where you could make lots and lots of money. So that awareness already of uh, the need to do my best, the need to be humble and consider everybody else, and to to help other people was 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 uh, inculcated at a young age. And then my parents worked in public health and talked. Of course, two doctors in the house. They talked about work. A lot of the time, uh, which I, which irritated me in my teens. So like, really, why must I listen to this? But you know, the stuff just trickles into your brain and stays there. So those ideas of uh, making sure that you're doing outreach, reaching people in the most difficult circumstances, and but at the same time, using your privilege to influence the decisions of those who control the money, those who control the policy. Because my father, when he retired, was a deputy peer, so I used to listen to a lot of talk about uh, the politics of health in Botswana, how decisions were being made going for primary health care. And then I have the really interesting privilege, when I was at, at medical school in London, my mom used to attend the World Health Assembly in Geneva. So she would come for two weeks, as it was then, and then I would, uh, perhaps behaving badly, take a week and a half of my studies and come to Geneva and share her room and go and attend some of the sessions and go to dinners and receptions with some of these people. I actually met uh, Hafdan Mala, the Director General of, of WHO, uh, you know, and you met, met lots of people. So these were all circumstances. As I was developing, as I was a student, my, my thinking was being influenced by some of these encounters with uh, really some opportunities, uh, you know, learning about things uh, because your parents talk about them or you have the ch- chance to go somewhere. Being a South African child influenced a lot my outlook on life, as you can imagine. So, that sense of uh, strong sense of things have to be equitable, we need justice for everyone, was uh, part of my having grown up or spent 11 years of my life, the first 11 years of my life in South Africa during the apartheid era. I, I, When I was a child, again, because we had privileged enough to have newspapers in the house, I used to be obsessed about reading the newspapers. Where's Mandela now, you know, during the, the Rivonia trial, following that very, very assiduously. The two things that obsessed me about newspapers then was the Rivonia trial, and the immorality act in those articles about oh there were police watching as this uh, mixed couple were about to do something then pounced on them so, which of mm-hmm. course i even as, as an 11 year old i found absurd so th- those are some of the influences uh, in my life uh, and the hiv stuff was really how can i put it it was a very it was a mixture of heartbreak and then huge inspiration when the opportunities opened up. You know, how something that's killing millions of people every year, and it was part of my job as a program manager to write all those statistics and try and imagine that these are people. Uh, Some of the decisions taken by the Botswana government at that time to invest its own money to pay for antiretroviral drugs for its population itself. So those are some of the things that influence me. You can can have agency, even with limited resources, if you take the right decisions, you can make very huge differences to the lives of people.
0: Staying with the theme of education, we now hear from Dr. Jane Ongolo, who used to walk from her village to school 40 kilometers away, taking the initiative to keep bettering herself. Today, she holds her doctorate in business administration and heads up the division on social welfare, vulnerable groups, drug control, and crime prevention at the African Union Commission. Listen to her reflection. Really,
3: without education, I would be nowhere. I'm a village girl, born and bred in the village. But back in the 70s, when we went to primary school, formal education was kind of the same everywhere. So regardless of which part of the village you are in, if you, you worked hard, you'd be able to join good secondary school. So I left my rural village to go to secondary school 40 kilometers away from my home, and I had to walk. I had to walk, carry my suitcase to a boarding school 40 kilometers away but I could do this because my dad also believed in education. I can tell you that I was the first girl in the village to go to secondary school. And many people told my dad that you are wasting the eggs of this girl. She needs to get married. So I've been many fasts. I was the first to go to secondary school from the village, and I went with very, very good marks. While I was in this poor school, in the village where no girl had ever gone to secondary school because of so many dynamics in the village. There was no really aspiration and we could not aspire to even select national schools. So whenever I attempted to select good schools, my teachers told me that girls will go nowhere. So even the the school that I went to, which is 40 kilometers away, was really a bad district school. I got in there and I told myself, this is not the place for me, because my ambition has always been to be a pilot. I said, Jane, look here, this school, you are going nowhere. For almost two terms, we were never taught maths, physics, or chemistry. So what did I do? And I always looked up to my dad and my mom. My dad, a villager, but someone who I think lived before his time. So one day, what did I do? I had an inkling of some good schools um, that are probably like 60 kilometers away, and I'd just like them because I'd seen them during um, district sports, the the uniform that the girls wore were just so beautiful. I went to the directory and applied. This is, I mean, Form 2 in this school that I did not like. And the school that I, that I needed to go to is actually called Uganda Girls. I can't even mention it by name. So I just wrote to the mistress with my poor broken English from the village. And I can even say what, what I wrote. I said, dear madam, this is a girl called Jane. Jane. I like your uniform. I like your uniform and I want to be in your school. But you know what? The teachers cheated me not to write to good school. So I was called to this bad school and I want your school, please accept me. I was shocked that in less than one month, the mistress had replied and said, thank you so much for writing to us. We'll make considerations by the end of third term. Third term, our last week in school, we are closing school. We are going home. I've not received any reply from this school and knowing that once I've gone home, I'll have no contact, I wrote again. I said, dear mother, this is that girl who wrote to you. You said you'll get back, you did not get back. We are closing school in one week. Now, what will I do? I cannot continue in this school, I must come to your school, please, madam, help. I went home confident that I will be called and I took everything, I carried everything of mine to go home. The last week of the school holidays I got a calling letter to go to Uganda Girls. And I went to Uganda Girls. It was tough. Firstly, I was so poor. Secondly, considering that the school I was in, physics, chemistry, and maths was hardly taught. I was completely behind. The headmistress called me to office the day that I went, said, you're a special case, and we don't do these things. The only condition you'll stay in this school of mine is for you to become number one to ten. And this was a school of three streams with about 95 girls. I started at the bottom. I was put in stream C. And she told me, if you don't make it to stream A, you are out of my school. It was hard hard to start taking notes, copying everything that the girls had done the previous year in Form 1. I was not sleeping at all. I used to work the whole night. I could put my feet in the water, in buckets, so that I don't fall asleep. Unfortunately, at the end of Term 1, I was still in C. At the end of Term 2, I was still in C. But whenever I went home, my dad told me, see, the report is written, improved. So don't worry, that mistress will not chase you. Second time, I worked so, so hard. By third time, I went to stream B. By form three, first term, I was in stream A. And I finished in stream A in form four and got very good grades to go to high school. So that's why I'm saying for me that education is the only equalizer. You have to believe in it and we have to encourage girls to really, really work hard. And if you have a dream as a young girl, as a young person, please go for it. No one should stop you because you're poor, because you're ugly, because you come come from rural community. It doesn't matter.
0: Hi, this is Lira, South African Afro-Soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amelia Malka on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, and democracy. Our previous two guests demonstrated the power of education through their own life stories, emphasizing that no matter where you come from, what your background is, education is an equalizer, a tool that empowers and makes dreams possible. Women continue to gain ground in every sphere of society. However, there are still some areas, especially in the corporate arena, where women are underrepresented. Joining us next is Dr. Leila Fouri, who is the CEO of the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. She shares some of her views about the importance of improving the number of women in decision making roles.
4: Well, um, I think this is a, a genuine and very important problem that you raise. And um, women face a number of barriers, unlike their male counterparts, in um, growing and developing their careers. Um, Generally speaking, women have much higher levels of family responsibility. There is a lack of female role models and women often have fewer and much weaker business networks. And um, culturally, there is a a culturally induced lower status and a lack of assertiveness in women. I think that there are structural and um, general Changes that can be introduced to start improving the number of women in decision making processes. And the first relates to this unconscious bias that we all inherently have. We tend to favor people who um, act, look, think, and decide like us. And so men tend to hire in their likeness. And because there are fewer people, fewer women in senior leadership positions, um, that problem is. Exacerbated. So I think the first step is that we need more women in decision making roles because it has a compounding effect. Women will hire in their likeness. We need more women role models. And in some instances, that might be a decision that is taken on a legislative or regulatory base, or it may be um, that important decision makers and role models uh, decide to employ more women and thereby send a very powerful symbolic message. We've just seen recently Biden has announced the appointment of a number of prominent females, including Janet Yellen, into economic roles. His entire communication division is female. Many years ago, when Thabo Mbeki was appointed as president of South Africa, he appointed a majority female cabinet um, around him. And that sent a very powerful message to business. And so I think that firstly there, there is a moral and social responsibility in uh, people who have positions of power to start to surround themselves with women and um, to start to demonstrate that um, women can be and should be as successful um, as, as men in these sorts of positions. I think that's the first thing the second side of this, of this problem is women themselves. And um, often we as women tend to underestimate our abilities. We, um, we don't back ourselves. We have a lack of confidence and I, I, I've experienced this firsthand uh, where I've held back on putting myself, myself forward for a position and um as a result, my male counterparts, who are in many instances less qualified for the role, tend to uh, make a success of, of their promotion attempt um, purely because uh, they back themselves and, and they're willing to put themselves forward. And so women need to be more um, uh, more, more bold and more confident and more willing to put themselves forward um, into positions of power. In addition to that, um, it's important to make sure that there are um, that there are a number of measurement techniques, and that um, that. That these roles are measured um, appropriately, and that research is done consistently. Um, I myself, in preparing for um, for discussions or for um, general um, advocacy um, in the gender and female uh, position, find that the research that is done is patchy. It's not consistent. It's outdated, and without proof points and and without real points of measurement, it's very difficult to. Highlight the problem and to advocate for change. So um, I think these are are some, but not all of the of the aspects that are important to start to change the the situation and the problem of inequity in the workplace.
0: I think also to an extent that companies take responsibility for their own actions because they know who they hire, they know they know how much they're paying, because that is Indeed. also another element on unequal pay where we could be doing the same work and output as male
4: counterparts but earning less. Yes, yes, absolutely. And um, the JSC um, in, in compliance with King 4 does require that companies um, disclose the level of female leadership at the board level. Um, it also encourages uh, disclosure on other elements. I do think that it's important uh, that disclosure is an important aspect because it drives behavior and, and measurement that is publicly um, disclosed, uh, does tend to to encourage um, movement um, in the space. Um, I, I think it's important at a listed and an unlisted level that more is done to disclose and to express the level of involvement. And I think more than just simply representation at senior levels, I, I believe that it's important to make sure that gender pay parity is adequately disclosed so uh, individuals um, who are earning less than their male counterparts um, should be these these anomalies should be made public and should be addressed Um, and often they go unnoticed because because they're simply not reported on given your
0: experiences to date what do you think we need to change to ensure that women have a better future
4: well, I think there are, there are, are so- soft uh, changes that we, we need to, to introduce and there are hard changes. Um, so we need to be clear about the different ways that company leadership can be, for example, shaped by policy. Um, a public policy has a large role to play in the kinds of rights and obligations that we give to companies and one of which is is to ensure that they are representative. So, for example, board representation, particularly in larger larger companies, um, is a very important driver of transformation um, in any country. And this will ensure that both women of color or minority groups and women generally can start to influence companies on their transformation journeys. Um, I, I think that uh, diversity is is a very important enabler of companies, diverse companies um are able to grow more, they're more innovative, they're more in touch with the marketplaces that they serve. And in South Africa, for example, we are a very diverse company. So good companies are those companies who are diverse and who create policies and both explicit policies and implicit cultural norms that encourage broader representation, that encourage a different mindset, that encourage a gender balance uh, around the table. And um, I think equally so, there's also an individual obligation on women leaders to ensure that they're leading from the front and that they are role models and that they're creating career opportunities for women around them.
3: Hi, my name is Yvonne Chakachaka and I'm UNICEF and Rollback Malaria Goodwill Ambassador. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in the struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy, a program against social ills such as racism, socio-economic class division and gender-based violence. Womanity, Women in Unity, presented
0: by Dr. Amalia Balka every week on this day at this time. As we come to the end of today's program, it's only fitting that we find sources of inspiration to fuel the coming season. We now turn to Dr. Elise Esterhazen, who is responsible for the management of the trauma unit and casualty including COVID-19 cases at Pelonomi Hospital in the Free State. She emphasizes the importance of mind over matter. There is a lot of
5: inspiring women out there that said very important things, and some of them I want to share with you. The one is from Gita Bellen, and she said, success depends on where intention is. And that's the start for all of us. We need to have intention to do whatever we want to do. Set your mind on that. And the next quote that I want to give you is, you should always be aware that your head or your mind creates your world. That will keep you going. And the importance of having a goal or a mindset that you are in a direction on the way to somewhere is the next quote by Aline Caddy. She said, a soul without a high aim is like a ship without a rudder. And that to me is f- important to keep you on track. And then I want to end with the most powerful one, although um, this, is, this is the one that I think is important for all of us. Uh, it was said by Gandhi, and he said, you must be the change you wish to see in the world. So I want to say to all those girls, there, you go, go! the sky is the limit.
0: The sky truly is the limit. And to reinforce the fact that we have the potential to go beyond expectations, Professor Julia Wells, the head of the Isikumbuzo Applied History Unit at Rhodes University, closes the show with some words of advice that remind women to think big. Um,
6: on the one hand, I could answer it in terms of just sort of outlook and attitude, and I would take it as advice I would give to any, any young woman wondering where she's going, um, which is to say just, just always, always, always be ready to climb right out of the box think out of the box the boxes that we've inherited are too confining they're too narrow they're too small there is an alternative there are other things that could happen you you need to climb out of the box and be ready to build some new boxes or yeah maybe you know come with a better a better a better image build a nice park instead of a box but to be to not be afraid of change not to be afraid of nonconformity to to a lot of the inherited ideas that we have and I think that attitude in me was, I uh, would be fair to say, was, was really promoted and cultivated by those kind of really powerful women activists that I met in the course of my research, that they made so many commitments to stick with their beliefs and their values through thick and thin that they really ended up making making a huge difference in the world. And so that kind of steadfastness and clarity about what really matters in the world, I think, is very, very important. So I would say, yeah, find find role models that, that really shine, and yeah, don't be afraid to try something new. The best advice I could give to young women is, on the one hand, never underestimate the hidden and unacknowledged power that women have. I really do think women have exceptional power, which I believe really does come from their life-producing roles. Um, That it has been unacknowledged probably forever and forever and forever, but to just feel confident that there is real power there. And out of that confidence, then let women stand together and assist each other.
0: You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. Happy New Year, stay safe, and best wishes for 2021.